It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback and three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. You're very welcome to Friday Afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. We have a fantastic lineup of people, as usual, for you this afternoon, between now and half past three. But first up on the show, meningitis is in the news again, following the tragic deaths of three people as a result of the dangerous infection that causes meningitis and septicemia. The HSE are urging parents to make sure their children are up to date with the relevant meningitis vaccinations. Now, what about somebody who's come through meningitis? Dorania Mulvihill is a survivor and she's with me on the line this afternoon. Dorania, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I'm taking you back a few years, but I'm sure you have a recollection of such a significant time in your life. You were 16 years of age. What do you recall before you were struck gravely ill? Um, Well, I suppose it's one of those things that just stays in your brain forever because it was such... Um, a big thing for me at the time and um, I was actually on a school tour at the time um, with my class it was our first trip abroad so we were away for a weekend in Amsterdam Um, and I was just gone 16 I was 16 a month so my friends were all 15 and it's not normal for 15 16 year olds to spend a night on a school trip sick in bed Um, but on the third night of that trip that's what I did Uh, I felt too sick to get up and I um, couldn't get out of bed so that was the first sign that something was wrong Um, but I woke up the next morning and felt fine we went off and did all the activities that you do on school trips flew home Um, I was a very avid runner I ran with the St Andrews Athletic um, Club here in Ashburn um, and I did a four mile run that night so it wasn't really something you'd associate with someone who was about to have their lives changed and turned upside down but the next morning, the morning I got the meningitis, so it was the 16th of February, I woke up and I was really, really ill. I knew this was sicker than what I would normally be. Um, it was like a really bad flu. I was sick. I was shaking. My bones were sore. My muscles were sore. But at the same time, um, it was nothing that seemed overly scary. Um, my mom said, right, the flu is obviously a lot worse than a cold, uh, so you need to stay in bed. So that's kind of the behind the scenes of when it all started. Now, 
That's fine. And and mum is saying, look, it is a flu. It looks like a severe flu. But mm-hmm. from there, it was rapidly downhill. Yeah, well, now I say that my mom said it was the flu. She did worry herself, um, even though she was telling me to relax. She um, asked the doctor to call around. And our local doctor is brilliant here. He came around quite quickly. I I think she felt I was too sick to, to go down to the surgery. Mm. Um, and he said, uh, look... The flu is really bad. There's no point in me sending you into the hospital because there's nothing they can do. Um, just rest up, set this out, and you'll be fine. Um, now, throughout that day, the doctor came a second time. After lunch, my mom started to get a little worried again because these winter months, sort of December, January, February, meningitis is always in the news. You always hear, you know, to look out for certain things. And I already did have a few of the symptoms, symptoms like the sore throat, the drowsiness, the dizziness, um, the, the, the flu-like symptoms. But there wasn't any um, sign or any indication at all of a rash or anything like that at that stage. And I suppose the rash is the thing that most people really associate with meningitis. Um, what we didn't know then is that by the time the rash comes, it's kind of at the very late stages of meningitis. Um, for me, it happened to be at nine o'clock that night. So I woke up with the symptoms in the morning. And at nine o'clock that night, I got up to go to the bathroom and um, I looked down at the palms of my hands and I saw these little spots on my hands. Now, I didn't really know anything about meningitis, but I showed it to my mom. And as soon as she saw those spots, she just knew because she had been a little bit fearful all day. Um, so she called the doctor and again, he came instantly to the house. He gave me a shot of penicillin, which stops the spread of the virus. And he said, just get in the car and just drive straight to the hospital. There's no point in waiting on ambulances. Every single minute, every single hour, every single second makes a really big difference. So we got in the car and we're in the hospital within 20 minutes. But within that time, what started as little spots in my hand had sort of travelled the whole way up both my arms. I could see them on my feet. I could see them on my legs. And the spots were starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So uh, I kind of, I didn't realise how big a deal this all was but I did know there was something big happening to me at the time. So you're in hospital and you're in emergency a case you're into uh, the A&E and quite quickly then into intensive care you you forget then obviously you, you're out of it at that stage because I know they put you into an induced coma was that quite quickly after you went in? Yeah, they knew straight away with me that it was meningitis because the rash was so severe. Um, Often they might do a lumbar puncture to determine whether or not it definitely is. Um, With me, it just seemed to progress very, very quickly. So I was in A&E for a small while until they could get um, a bed available in isolation in intensive care. I do remember going down for an MRI scan and looking up and seeing the doctors pushing me on the trolley. And I said to them, um, am I going to be in here for a while? And they said, you're going to be in here for a good while, so just relax. Like, I remember being the thing that was most sort of to the fore in my head was the fact that I was wearing my mom's slippers because in the rush out the door, I couldn't find my own. And I was just really embarrassed that the doctors were going to think I was really uncool with these green furry slippers on. (laughs) That was the the most important thing in my head. I didn't realise that I was 
only a small while away from being in a medically induced coma. But they did um, induce that coma fairly quickly because the virus had spread and it was now attacking my organs. So my organs were starting to shut down one by one. Um, and they asked my parents quite quickly um, in, you know, I'd say I was only in there two or three hours. They asked them to, um, if they wanted a priest to come to give me the last rites because it was very unlikely that I'd survive the night. Um, and they asked them to bring a family member in to be by their side because it was going to be a very tough night. So for my mom and dad, they sort of went from, you know, me being having a flu in bed, them being a bit worried, to a couple of hours later being told, you know, she needs the last rites and you need somebody here supporting you because it's going to be a very tough 24 hours. Um, my brothers at the time were 9 and 12 and um, that morning they were brought in to say goodbye to me. So it was all very intense and all very rapid and all very sudden. Um, but that's what meningitis does when it hits hard, you know. My God, when you just think hey, within a matter of hours, you're actually fighting for your life. What type of meningitis had you? So I had meningococcal septicemia, um, <clears throat> and it's the meningococcal vi- uh, bacteria slash virus that's doing the rounds again. Um, I had strain C. So strain C of meningitis and strain B are the two most common in Ireland. Um, I had the bacterial form. So the bacterial form is definitely more deadly than the viral form. doesn't mean the viral form isn't a big deal when it happens for people. But when people get viral meningitis, they tend to be maybe in hospital for a couple of days and then they'll be released. Um, when they get the bacterial form, very often... You know, the situation is different. They can be very, very sick for a really long time. Um, A lot of people will die from it. And a huge amount of people will be left with permanent um, and quite severe physical disabilities afterwards as well. So, you know, bacterial meningitis is not... A small fry thing. It's a it's a big deal when it happens. Certainly not. How long were you in that induced coma for? So I was in the induced coma for eight weeks. Um, at the time, the first few weeks, it was touch and go all the time. They just didn't know if I was going to survive. Um, I got septicemia along with meningitis, which is a blood poisoning. Um, and that comes with about 25% of all meningitis cases. Um, so it was the septicemia that was doing a lot of the damage to my body once the meningitis had cleared. So I had gangrene in both my legs and my hands. Um, I was on all kinds of stuff, like I was getting dialysis all the time, my lungs collapsed multiple times, I got pneumonia a couple of times, MRSA, all kinds of things that kind of set the recovery back. But um, kind of six weeks into my stay in hospital, the doctors came to my mum and dad and said, look, the gangrene or the, the sort of septicemia in her legs has turned to gangrene and we feel we need to amputate the lower part of both your daughter's legs, so below the knee. Um, And if we amputate her legs, we feel she's going to survive. Um, If we don't amputate the legs, basically she's not going to survive. Um, So for my my parents, you know, I sort of mentioned that I was a keen runner. I wasn't just running, I was into all sports. I played basketball, camogie, um, Gaelic football. So for them, that was tough because they knew that by agreeing to that, that I probably wasn't going to be able to do all them things that I loved doing. 
But at the same token, it was a life or death decision. Um, now, my dad was asked to sign the form, the release form, to allow me or to allow the doctors to do the operation. And he just physically couldn't do it. He said, I, I, I can't turn around to my 16-year-old daughter when she wakes up and say, I allowed this to happen. So he, he said no. So my mom obviously stepped in. It was one of those things that had to be done. Um, and they took me and um, did that operation. And um, once they amputated my legs, things started changing. I started getting better. So, you know, a lot of people would associate an amputation as, a, as an awful sort of downtime in a person's life. And although it was in one sense, for me, it was the turning point because it was by doing the amputation that I started to get better then. So I started to be able to wake up and come off the various life support machines after that operation. Isn't that just terrific? And it just shows you what that decision meant for you in the long term. You had the amputation below the knee and both legs. You knew nothing about it. You were in an induced coma. When you come out of the coma, you have to be broken this news. Do you recall that time? I don't specifically remember being told... um, it, it was a, a tough time for my parents because they really didn't know what the best way was to break the news to me. Um, and one of the hospital psychologists said that it was probably best coming from a medical profession rather than a family member. Um, so they sent a, a psychologist in and the psychologist came out to my parents and said, look, she took the news really maturely. She She's OK. You know, you can go on in and talk to her about it. So my mom and dad went in. But by the time they had come into me a few minutes later, I'd completely forgotten everything the psychologist had just said because I was on so much medication. And so you know, I was just kind of dopey, half taking things in. So it was kind of tough for them because they didn't really know what to say to me or how to say it. Um, but I do remember it was, I'd say it was probably a couple of nights later, I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a nurse on night duty there. Um, and I said to her, oh, um, the nail on my big toe is sticking into the the, the toe beside us. I, I, I need to get a scissors and cut my nails. And her face just kind of froze. And I remember this moment and she sort of said, oh, well, um, I don't think so because your toes aren't there anymore. And I, I, I don't really remember how I reacted, but the story is that I got really, really, really upset. And they had to ring my mom in the middle of the night and ask her if she'd come in because I was apparently inconsolable. Now, I don't 100% remember that, but I do remember the look on the nurse's face that moment when I asked her for the for the scissors to cut my nail. It's one of those things that happens to people when they lose a limb. They get this thing called phantom pain where they can still feel the old limb. Um, and I definitely could. But at the same time, even though that was a sort of a traumatic moment, the overall picture at the time was that I was on such heavy drugs. I was just out of the induced coma, you know, having been in it for eight weeks, that it was all very sort of a little snippet here and a little snippet there. Um, I had really, really strong, vivid dreams when I was in the coma as well. And I wasn't sure what was real and what wasn't real. So it took a while for my mind to really make sense of everything. Um, But the immediate thing that I was faced with around that time was my hands. 
because while they had done the operation on my legs and um, my legs were sort of in huge big bandages and I was in a bed, a big bed in intensive care, so I couldn't see them. So it didn't really bother me so much. But to look down at my hands, my hands were black like coal and um, they were just pure black. And that was, again, from the gangrene and the septicemia. And I could see my hands. Obviously, you do so much with your hands. You, they're, they're, they're there right in front of your face. And what worried me was what the plan was for my hands and what was going to happen to my hands. Um, so that was the next phase then after recovering from the leg amputation was, you know, dealing with the hands and what was going to happen there. And you had to go through another major trauma for your body and for your mind and uh, make a call on this as well amputation followed yeah they they said look they'll save what they can and it was different than my legs my legs the the gangrene was killing me in my legs they had to do that operation straight away the hands were fine the tissue was just had just died away so they said, we'll go, we're going to wait for as long as possible and see what we can save. So they took me in for an operation one day and I was hoping to maybe, I was hoping that I would lose nothing. But in the end, they ended up having to amputate all 10 of my fingers. So I lost half my hands on, on, on both sides, more on the right than on the, on the left. Um, and that was all done in over the, a series of a few operations. Like altogether, I had 50 plus anesthetics while I was in hospital. Um, I'd say the first 10 to 15 times that they had to put the dressings on my hand, they had to bring me in under anesthetic to do it because it was such a, um, a kind of a gruesome and a, a, it was such a delicate process, really. Um, and then they started doing the dressings on the ward, but I refused to look. Once they took the bandages off, I didn't want to see. It was sort of like once I saw it was real and I didn't want to have a look at my hands. And so it took me definitely at least a fortnight, I'd say, after the operation before I was willing to look at the hands. And the nurses played ball. They used to, um, I, I used, I had a disc man. That's what was out at the time. I used to listen to one of the Now albums that was out. I just close my eyes and they'd do the operation or the dressings, trying to do it in as pain-free a way as they could. Um, and, and I just wouldn't look. So they were sort of planning what the best way was for me to to sort of to see the hands and to come to terms with them. But what they didn't realize was that I was gradually kind of peeking um, while they were doing the dressing. So I could just do it in my own time. And yes. um, so I sort of would look bit by bit. And then, you know, after a few days, I said to them, look, I've seen the hands. There's no need to keep up the pretense anymore. <laughs> How long were you in hospital, all told, and when you came out adapting to a new world, that must have been so difficult? Yeah, I was in hospital for um, over ten and a half months. The doctors allowed me home on Christmas Eve to spend Christmas at home with the promise that I'd be back on the 2nd of January. But actually, that little time at home, I started to recover so much quicker than I had been doing in hospital. Um you know, all my wounds were healing up. I had wounds all over my body because it wasn't just losing the limbs. Um, the meningitis had, le- had left sores as well in places like my elbows, my shoulders, my hips. Um, but everything just started healing so much faster when I was at home. Um, in hospital, you're surrounded by sick people. There's viruses. I had MRSA. I wasn't healing. And um, once I came home, I started getting better. 
So they agreed um, on that second week in January to allow me to stay at home and travel in and out of the hospital a few days a week to get the dressings changed. So I was full term in hospital for 10 months and then in and out for another four to five months. Um, and that took me up to sort of the early summer of the following year. Um, and then I just sort of decided I've had a, enough of the the hospital, I've had enough of the operations. I'm just ready now to start getting better. And I started to focus then on you know, different people I'd heard about and seen who had prosthetics um, and prosthetics, prosthetic legs, prosthetic hands, different things that allowed people to walk and to live a normal life. And so I started focusing on the possibility of getting them, learning to walk again and then trying to make it back to school for the September of the following year. So that became my focus then. And you did it because I want to tell them this wonderful woman got seven A's in her leaving cert. Well, yeah, I, um, I, I, I did well enough now in the leaving cert, but at the same token, I was, I was lucky, I think, in terms of the subjects I did and what came up, because it could have been a different story for me that year. But yeah, I went back into fifth year, and um, I wasn't sure how things would go for me, how I would adapt to being back at school. But uh, yeah, no, I, I really took to it and was just so happy to be back with my friends and. I was lucky then that things went my way for the exam. So, you know, a couple of years previously, I was in the depths of it all in the hospital bed, having just gone through meningitis, not knowing what life would be. Um, I didn't know I'd be able to go back to school. I didn't know I'd be able to do normal things. But I I did, and I, I was able to do it, and I did well from it. So it was a good achievement when you think about it all. Absolutely. On to DCU Communications, working with RTE, Channel 4, researcher, reporter, documentary maker, and mum of beautiful little girl who's two years old. And may I tell them today, number two on the way shortly. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So I have uh, Katie, who's a, a live wire at the minute, and then I decided to make life just a little bit more busy and complicated as if it isn't enough already and uh, have number two coming now as well. But it's great, like, it's, you know, it's it's brilliant to, it, it, it's great to do stuff connected to meningitis. It's great to do stuff connected to the Paralympics and prosthetics and all the medical stuff. But it's even better to just be normal and have a normal life and do all the things that I would have done had this never happened to me. So it was lovely to, you know, get married and um, have have kids. And just, you know, for Katie, my two-year-old, she doesn't know any different. You know, she doesn't see me as someone with a disability or someone strange. I'm just, you know, um, her mom to her. So that's lovely to be able to to do that as well, you know, because sometimes you think when you go through major things in life, you're not going to get to do the normal things. So it is nice to know that it is possible. But uh, it's it's not without a hard road along the way and lots of small battles along the way. Absolutely. And what a journey you have had and have come through. And just to say to listeners again today, the reason we're talking to Dorani is just in, in the current situation with meningitis raising its head again this winter, do make sure your children have the vaccinations and if they need boosters, get them done as well. That's the message we want to get across today. But you've heard the story of someone who's been through 
the difficult part if you are unfortunate enough or somebody belongs to you is to uh, contract meningitis. You've heard what Dorania has been through. Isn't she just remarkable? Thank you very much. It was, it was lovely to talk to you. And just the final thing I'd say um, for everyone to just get online and be aware of the symptoms because it's all about time. So just know what to look out for. Get to the hospital as quickly as you can and then your odds of survival are massively shoot through the roof. I thank you for joining me on the show today. What a story you have and I wish you well with the new arrival in a couple of weeks. Thank you. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback and three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. Welcome back to Late Lunch. I have a remarkable young woman with me on the show today. She's three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. Just reminding me, if you'd like to get in touch with us on the show today, the numbers are 086-1800-658 by text or WhatsApp, or you can call in on 1850-715-958. Now, it's two years since Drogheda's greatest son and Irishman of the 20th century, T.K. Whitaker, passed away in his 101st year. Ken's legacy lives on, and to coincide with his anniversary, his biography, T.K. Whitaker, Portrait of a Patriot, is out now in paperback. And I'm delighted to tell you... That that his biographer and lifelong and great friend, Anne Chambers, is with me on Late Lunch today. Anne, great to see you again. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here, Ah, I'm just delighted you're here on this particular day. May I say, first off, you were so close through your life. You were probably his greatest friend. You did this wonderful work on his life and times. You must miss him more than most, Tilly. Well, certainly, you know, yesterday (coughs) he certainly was in my mind. And as you say, I go back a long way with him. I started off before I became a full time writer. I was in the central bank and I was very lucky to be there during his governorship. And he really just with a little bit of encouragement, you know, I think there are many traits in Ken Whitaker, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them this e- today, but I think the greatest one was his ability to inspire confidence in other people. Not many people have that gift and he had, and he really did give me that push to say, go and write if you want to. You know, and I was hedging my bets and, you know, you were in a good pensionable job at the time, and he said, go out there and do it. And he gave me my start in the Central Bank with the unlikely best-selling title of Land Price Trends in Ireland and the EEC which was published in the Central Bank Bulletin. So I do go back and I'm very happy to say, Jerry, as well that I was with him on the day he died, just surely, purely by accident. I used to relieve the family occasionally just to sit with him and talk to him in his last uh, days. And I happened to be there on the day he died and I did notice that he was failing and I wasn't surprised when Brian, his son, rang me at around half five that evening to say he had passed away out of our lives. So yes, I was very, very sad. And he does come into my memory and my you know, in my recollections at various times. Of course, and, and, and mm. of course is only natural. Now, one little uh, vignette before we move on. He he achieved something because his mum lived long as well, but he wanted to live longer, didn't he? He did. He always told me, you know, you should be careful who you choose as your mother, you know, in terms of long life. And Mrs Whitaker Sr. Uh, lived to be 99 and it was always his ambition and he did it by about one month. <laughs> he got by mm, her indeed. He did. He did. Isn't that so interesting? Mm. Now, you, you talk about the greatness of the man, but Anne, what was he like? You said the inspiring of confidence in people. That is a special gift. But what was he like to be round? 
Well, I would say generosity is the first thing that you you think of when you think of Ken Whitaker. He was generous of himself. He was generous of his ability. He was generous of his time. I, when I was going through his papers, I found, for example, loads of letters from students who were doing theses. They'd send it to him and he would carefully go over them and give them some. Now, who would do that in a very, very busy life? He made himself available, always under the radar. Second thing I always associate with him, and it's not really associated with top civil servants or bankers, and that is a great sense of humour. You know, he had this great sense of humour, not taking himself too seriously. All his abilities uh, really lying very, very lightly on his shoulders. I'm thinking of one thing he said, you know, uh, at the famous, when he arranged the meeting in 1965 between... um, Captain Terence O'Neill and Sean Lamass. Don't forget, nobody had spoken on this side or the other side of the border for 43 years previously. And Whitaker organised that famous historic meeting. But he said at the lunch that was held in Stormont House that day, he said to me, he said, you know, Dr Paisley, he said, would have been very perturbed if he had known that the wine served at the lunch, lunch was Chateau Neuf du Pape. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, he, he saw the humorous yes. even in the most historic, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, I love that about him. There was always that sense of humour about him and of not taking himself too seriously, which we should all, I think, try to emulate. Absolutely, really. absolutely. What about Drahada? Because he came here when he was six years of age from Rostrever mm. in Northern Ireland. His love of Drahada was immense, oh, yes, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Came over and all my interviews, I did 60 hours of interviews with him. And it always somehow came back to Drogheda. Uh, Drogheda meant an awful lot to him and I think it was very fitting that the last public duty he did was I think just about two years before he passed away in turning the sod for the new school, the CBS, which he he said he owed so much. Drogheda remained ver- verdant in his mind. He talked about memories of growing up in Paradise Cottage where the family lived, playing marbles in Fair Street, football on William Street, being chased away for their trouble. He also thought about his first venture into economics when he put a half penny on the railway line between here and Navan in the hope that it would turn into a full penny. But he said it didn't <laughs> It didn't uh, materialise. Uh, but on a more serious note, I think his education in the CBS, that stayed primary in his and influenced his public life in such a way. He told me himself that uh, the development of indeed his exceptional scholastic ability was attributable to the ability and the, I suppose, the beyond call of duty of the teachers that taught him in the CBS. It was here he learned independence of thought. Uh, to make his own critical assessment, never to take anything for granted, never to take history as written or being the last word. And, you know, he brought all that into his public, in the various public roles and public offices he filled. And he always gave uh, really uh, his his great acknowledgement to the CBS, particularly in Drogheda for that. And, you know, Anne, you were there with myself on the night recently last year when his family bequeathed mm. so much of his personal mm. uh, mm. art 
artefacts to the school. It's now a shrine from in that Absolutely. school. Absolutely. He'd and love you know, that, wouldn't he? You know, don't forget that he was uh, Chancellor of the National Universities. A lot of the big universities would have vied for that, but that is where he would have been most happy that his collection of personal memorabilia would reside. And I'm sure the people of Drogheda and indeed the students in the CBS are delighted with that honour. Now, there were three tenants from your uh, long association with him and uh, working with him on this wonderful book that you've produced that that he really placed emphasis on. The economy, Northern Ireland, you touched on a moment ago, Mm. and the Irish language. Mm. Starting with the economy, Mm. I just think today, could you do something for me? I know I'm asking a lot of you, but if he were sitting with us today and he was in his pomp Mm. and he was in the middle of this in, in the roles he held, what would he make of Brexit? Oh, I think he would have a lot to say on Brexit. Let's just talk about the major, uh, the major economic, um, uh, the, the one that he most cared about was the great economic development that he masterminded, the blueprint for the regeneration of the Irish economy, which was going down the Swanee in 1957 and 1958. And which he did, took on himself with a crowd of his civil servants uh, on a totally voluntary basis, independent of the government. And the great um, Magna Carta if you like, of the Irish economy, economic development was produced and we all know what that did for the for the Irish economy, which, as I say, was going down the tubes. But there was one thing with Ken Whitaker. He was very pro-European, but he also understood the significance of Ireland and Britain's coexistence. We are, after all, two islands here and we should, I think, never turn our back fully, certainly on our neighbour. I know we have a troubled history, uh, but we also share an awful lot of positives in common. And I think if Ken Whitaker was around today, he'd certainly be looking at you know, keeping in with our friends in the UK, uh, as well as, of course, keeping our leg in Europe. We know we know that. But also Ken Whitaker was beginning, I think, to become a little, even though he was a terrific uh, promoter of the European ideal. And, you know, it was Ken Whitaker who, long before we joined the EU, who went around to all the various governments in Europe at the time looking for Irish uh, admissions. And when the door was slammed in our faces in 1965, it was Ken Whitaker who went over to England and negotiated the famous Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement, which kept this country its head above water until we got into the EU in 1973. And I'm sure he would be saying here, you know, yes, we stay in Europe, but we also keep in touch with our uh, nearest neighbour. After all, we still have 48% of our exports going to Britain. And unlike in 1965, Britain also, we're a big customer of Britain. So there's a to and fro element in that. I think also with the border, he might very well be saying, as he did, with Sean Lamas and um, Captain Terence O'Neill in 1965. Maybe we should be doing a lot more out of the media circus, away from all, all of this nonsense that's going on about it and detracting from the real thing, to go up and talk maybe to Arlene Foster and the DUP and other interested parties. And surely maybe what Britain and what the EU cannot do, maybe dialogue between North and South might bring about a resolution, particularly on the backstop. I think he would be investigating all of these possibilities, you know. And um, I think he would, like all of us, be very, very concerned about the direction that Brexit is taking now. 
I think uh, he'd be so proud of those words you say there now, and he would echo what you say as well, and I could see what he would do. Mm. He considered everything. Practically. He was a practical man, uh, Yes, you know. and, and you make a point. We, we mm. often tend to say, oh, look at them in Britain now, look at mm. the mess they're in, but it's in nobody's interest. None, and certainly not in ours. No, big time, it certainly isn't. Northern Ireland, you've mentioned, and he was involved behind the scenes mm. in the talk, the talks. What about the Irish language? It was it was close to his heart, wasn't oh, it? Oh, gosh, it was. It was so, I think, my uh, the greatest disappointment he had in me was that I wasn't more fluent, you know, and he but he had that lovely way with him. If I couldn't get words to express myself, which I'm embarrassed to say I couldn't, even though I did, of course, Irish at school and went to Irish college in the summer holidays and did all these things. But he had this lovely way of encouragement, encouraging you to speak the few words rather than dictating to you. And, you know, the policy that he couldn't uh, agree with and never agreed with was the replacement of Irish by English. You know, that was actually a Polish, uh, believe it or not, a policy back in the 1960s. And he said, no way. Bilingualism was the only way to go here. But he was saying to me towards the end of his life, you know, it's no longer a government. A government ethos cannot keep the language alive unless the people get behind it. And it's you and me and everybody else to say the few couple of fuckla, to send your children maybe down to Irish college as he indeed went himself on a scholarship to run a fast way back in the 19, uh, early 1930s. And that really is the only way to keep the language alive. It's through love, not through dictate. Cúpla Nomad, Bémi de Rash, Antranona Shaw and Chambers with us on Late Lunch. I urge you to get this book and read it. Give it to your teenage children as well and let them have a look at it as well. It's out on paperback at the moment. Uh, Anne Chambers is with us. She's uh, T.K. Whittaker's biographer. And uh, paperback it is, isn't it, Anne? And it's available all round at the moment? It yeah. is indeed. It's, I think it's fourteen ninety nine, so it won't break the bank. It certainly <laughs> won't. T.K. Whittaker, Portrait <laughs> of a Patriot. Now, let's come back to uh, a couple of things uh, about himself. And something you were just saying to me there a, a, a moment ago off, Mike, um, and I did mention this to you before when you were with me on the show the crash we went through, mm. the nonsense with the banks, the mm. regulation and all that went on at the central bank and in turn the banks and then dealing with triche in Europe. There was another side to Ken Whittaker. Oh there was indeed, I remember, remember it well in the central bank and he had a very many different difficult times in the central bank. Indeed I don't think the central bank would have been his top choice of role. He preferred the Department of Finance. But as governor of the central bank, we had crises at the time. People will remember the two oil crises. We also had the start of a credit, the loosening of credit. When he became governor, he gave the first warning. He said that the central bank should be the warning light and it might have unpalatable things to say. And under his governorship, I, uh, I arrived later on, but it was transformed into an effective and dynamic institution, which he guided with a very firm hand. And he made it independent both of government and of the commercial banks. Um, he resisted many government uh, 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 attempts to muscle in on the independence of the central bank. And there is one very special one when, as Minister for Finance, I think it was Charlie Hawhey, wanted to take over into the Department of Finance credit, uh, the credit monetary policy role. And Whitaker resisted. And what he said first to the minister was that as a good Catholic, I recognise the supreme authority of the Pope would like a good bishop 
I claimed jurisdiction in my own diocese. And when the minister persisted, became a far more firmer retort and he threatened to resign as governor. So I can tell you that credit policy control remained in the central bank. I think Whitaker was guided by what the 1942 Central Bank Act, and I think it's important to read it out in view of what has happened in the last um, uh, financial collapse. And it says that what pertains to the control of credit in the economy, the constant and predominant aim of the central bank should be the welfare of the people as a whole, not the welfare of banks or bondholders. And against a background of runaway inflation, balance of payments problems, he resisted all government efforts to fund non-productive purposes from the coffers of the central bank, you know, and most importantly, he kept the regulation of the commercial banks under tight control. And that is where really things went bad. When that uh, function was removed from the central yes. bank. And you mentioned the European Central Bank. Well, I can tell you that Monsieur Trichet would have been faced with a far more determined opponent to his policy of light touch regulation of banks if he had Ken Whitaker sitting opposite to him on that governor's table. Yes, I've often reflected that uh, had we had him when oh. we needed him at that time yeah. or somebody like him, mm. it would have been to a different stand up outcome. really Absolutely. to Europe at the time. Can I read these few words? Because I've picked these and I think in a way it sums Ken up. He says, and to quote him, let us remember that we're not seeking economic progress for purely materialistic reasons, but because it makes possible relief of hardship and want, the establishment of a better social order, the raising of human dignity, and eventually the participation of all who are born in Ireland in the benefits, moral and cultural, as well as material, of spending their lives and bringing up their families in Ireland. Mm. Well, that was the motivation of his economics. And really, again, you have to go back to his time here in Drogheda and also when the family moved early to, to to Dublin. He told me himself of getting on his bike early in the morning, putting on his bicycle clips around his, his trouser leg to stop the fleas and going into the tenements of Dublin where he was there with this St. Vincent de Paul. Now, anybody whose economic uh, thesis is based on that practical application, what other economist in this country could say that? And when- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
you look at uh, Ken Whitaker's economics, they are readable, they're practical, they come from a guy who never went to university in the sense that we know it today, but all his degrees, and by golly has he many, and he has them all with honours, were all done by post while he worked in the civil service, starting off as a clerical officer and becoming Secretary of the Department of Finance at the age of 39. We have somebody here quite special, you know, both in his the ethos of his economics. They're not coming from the rarefied atmosphere of a university where everything is theory. They were coming from practical application. He told me himself of getting the economic development while he was uh, 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 nursing uh, or helping to to rear his young son, staying up at night to 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 get him to sleep while trying to do this. You know, this is all from a man who was practically his applications were all practical. For example, economic development. I found a file in the Department of Finance. People, it was actually published, and people, housewives, farmers, business people, ordinary citizens, actually wrote into him in the Department of Finance saying, "This is the first good thing we've heard for Ireland. It should be made a compulsory reading." One said in the Dáil, a chapter a day in the Dáil, you know, as well as the IMF and Financial Times saying that this was a fantastic uh, undertaking and a, and a fantastic uh, economic thesis. So you have Ken Whitaker really as the most practical of all our public servants I think that we ever had You'll never see that again going in as a clerical officer and rising to be the main man in a government department at such a young age that is for sure Anne. Now let me ask you this because you had his ear and his yours did he ever comment on what happened even privately to you when the crash happened? A lot of people tried to get him to talk during that. What he said to me was that economics and particularly banking had moved into an area that he didn't feel competent to talk about. Now, if you knew where Ken Whitaker, he always researched everything. There was nothing off the cuff about Ken Whitaker. Everything was researched properly and he was felt he was out of touch. Banking and central banking particularly had gone off in a oh, in a new direction. You know, the globalization, that technology, all of that, and he refused to talk. But at the height of the financial crash, uh, when I interviewed the um, Patrick Honan, the governor of the central bank, Patrick told me that he came in and said to him, what are you going to do to save Ireland from, and he used this word, humiliation? And that's, he was appalled, he told me, and perplexed at the uh, central bank's perceived taking their eye off the ball and allowing the Irish people to have to pick up the tab for bondholders and banks that really should have paid their own way for their own misuse. He loved his leisure time as well and he spent a lot of leisure time around this area here and was very familiar. He loved water courses, he loved nature and he was a great angler because I will tell you <laughs> that I was on Burishool one day fishing at Loch Furness and I had the pleasure of saying hello to him and he was fishing with his son I think there on the day and somebody else we were salmon and sea trout fishing. He loved it didn't he? Well in a way that's how I got to know him. He knew I was from the west of Ireland and he just bought a little fishing, a little cottage down in North Mayo and that's that's how we kind of got together in the bank. Normally, a, a junior executive officer did not get access to a governor, I can tell you. But um, 
it was his passion. He said everybody should always have one passion in their life, hopefully not an immoral one. So he went for the salmon fishing and he loved it with a passion. And also his family told me, you know, that's the, when the real stern Ken Whitaker came into being. If any of them threw a pebble into the river while he was fishing or anything, they were sent home with a little cuff over <laughs> the ear maybe. So salmon fishing, which all started here, of course, in Drada on the beautiful Boyne and he saw people fishing there during his uh, childhood here. And uh, that was the passion in his life, yes. He had indeed. And you know, Anne, you are a passionate woman uh, mm-hmm. about Ken and you, you, you've you done a marvellous job on keeping his memory alive and recording for posterity mm-hmm. the great man he was. And you know, I, I say it again, we should go back time and again and learn from him. Well, we should, we know, but sadly we don't tend to learn from history. We just go on repeating the same mistakes, you know, and that is a pity. But I think Drada and County Louth can be very, very happy to know and I feel honoured, as I was so honoured to be, he never asked me to write his biography. That uh, a press report was written on that. It was a publisher who asked me to approach him if I if he would do it. And he had been asked by a lot of very eminent uh, economists and other uh, co- commentators. And uh, I think he felt that I might get to the person rather than just the economist and the banker. And I hope I've done that. You have done it by the spade, for let me say it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And I'll mention it again: T.K. Whitaker, Portrait of a Patriot. It's out now in paperback folks get hold of it read it and enjoy until the next time Anne Chambers again on the second anniversary it was yesterday of the passing of the great man and is in his hundred and first year we remember today Ken Whitaker through his brilliant biographer and close friend Anne Chambers and thanks a million The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback and three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. Martin Murphy was on his way to work in 2013. He worked as a carpenter and he got up that day and went to work as normal. Little did he realise that uh, that particular 24 hours was about to change his life forever. He joins me in studio this afternoon along with his lovely wife, Lisa. You're both very welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for dropping into me today. It's great that you're here with us. Well, take us back to that time. You were working as a chippy. I was, yeah. And what, w- come back to that day and tell us what actually happened. Um, I went up to the yard where I worked, so I did, and uh, we were getting our orders to go to different jobs and stuff like that. And uh, I was following a crew of lads to, to a new job that we were going to, and it's just kind of daydreaming as such, thinking about the job I was doing and stuff like that, how I had to do, and uh, just last concentration of the road and ended up in the field so much of it. And you were driving yourself, were I you? was driving myself, And yeah. was th- there was no one else in the car, No one you? else with me, no. Do you see the way you recall that? You can actually recall that your mind just drifted somewhere else. Was that it? Yeah, that's all I can... That, that's the only explanation you I have for it. it. Yeah, and you went off-road then, did you, in the car? I went off-road, yeah, into, into a field, that was all. So mm. it was. And... Obviously, was there somebody behind you or in front of you or what happened that saw this happen? No one actually seen it happen. I, Nobody I, at all? No, no, no one at all. What happened was uh, I rang the person I was actually following and uh, he came back to me, so he did. And uh, I got out of the fan myself, so I did. And I went into the hospital where I was told I had after a fracture on my back, so I did. That's fractured my spine. Oh, my God. So, so you were able to move out on your own initially? Initially, yeah. And you thought, well, maybe everything's okay here. That's correct, yeah. But... 
a fracture of the spine. Is that what happened That's to you? That's what happened to me, yeah. And you lost... Where are you, where are you disabled from? From the uh, waist just, down, is it? Just, for, yeah, from the waist down as such. Um, you have full mobility above that above, with your yeah. arms and everything else. Very no. lucky that one, yeah. Must be a fierce thing to happen and a, a change in your life. Just one minute, okay, the next minute, it's turned on its head. <gasps> yeah, yeah, it definitely was. But I was very lucky. I had great family support and friends mm. around me and that at the time, so I had so... I had a young child as well. He was only four months at the time, so he got got me through a lot of it now. Yeah. Uh, from hospital, you were, went to Dunleary to the rehab then, was it? I went to Dunleary, yeah. Directly, was it? from? Yeah, from, yeah. Yeah, from the hospital. Yeah, I went up to Dunleary for three months, so I did. It's a long time, isn't it, to spend... It is know. a long time, yeah. Mm. Well, um, I probably spent uh, about six to eight weeks there. Uh, about six weeks, I'd say, actually. And then we were allowed to get home for the weekends and stuff like that too. Mm. It's kind of left you adapted being home for yeah. a few days. In when did they like. tell you that you weren't going to be able to walk again? Was that soon after the accident when you were in hospital, or did that? Was, when did that happen? It was more or less when I went to Dunleary. So then. it was yeah. So you really were hoping that you know with some work here I'll be up and about again. That's correct. Yeah. When they told you, how did that happen? Do you remember being told? I do, yeah. I remember being told. I remember actually uh, the whole family were actually called up for that meeting sort of uh, because uh, I was asking to use machines that I probably shouldn't have been using and stuff like that. So they were getting a bit concerned and, and what the talk was going to be the outcome of it. So um, to some extent, I, I kind of secretly knew this was going to be the case as such. But... Um, I suppose it hit me family more than mm. more than me. So you such, suspected you know, that this outcome was going to be as it is now. Yeah, it's kind of did, you yeah. had that in your Just mind. Something, yeah, okay, with you. Like, yeah. Let's bring Lisa into the conversation. Thank you so much for coming in today, along along with himself. What do you recall of that day? He headed off to work. You have a a, a little child that you're yeah. four months old. Yeah, I, I remember getting a phone call from Dr. Emma Smith in the NRH and um, saying that she was concerned about Martin. Will I come up? So I got on to my mother and father-in-law and told, asked them to come with me. You know when the doctor's talking to you, kinda, you don't take everything in. Yeah. And I knew this wasn't going to be a good conversation. So she didn't give much away over the phone. And um, myself and my mother-in-law, oh, she were in floods of tears, but Martin was fine. You know, he did know, I think, deep mm, down. Deep yeah. down himself. Yeah. And going back to the day of the accident, where were you or do you remember what you were up <laughs> yes. to when you got the phone call? I would do believe I was, I had, I, like I said, I had a four-month-old baby and so my phone, I'm a nuisance with my phone. It's never on or it's never on loud. And um, it was my mother that got in touch with me in the end. And I went straight into the, the mm. A&E to see him. Did you know how serious it was at that stage? Or no, nothing? no, nothing, no. But obviously when you arrived in the hospital, yes, pretty yes. quickly you knew this wasn't just yes. an ordinary accident that had happened. Yes, you know? yes. Um, the baby, obviously, and you know he's in rehab then for three months, you're trying to mind a, a new yes. arrival as well. How did that, was that difficult for you getting up to see him? Um, no, because um, I had great, my mother and father-in-law are amazing people, they live next door. And I had great support. Um, my family would there be someone going up every day yeah. and Connor would nearly get up every day to see him so mm. I, w- I wouldn't drive up every day myself I'd be a terrible driver anyway <laughs> but um, 
I would have someone bringing me up every day. Okay. And he, so you, you worked it well. Yeah, we looked, and you we had family well. support again coming in to help it you. It was amazing. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? And it's a little is a little boy you have? Yes. What's his name? Connor. And what age is he now? He's six. Oh my God, you're you're busy with a six-year-old, I'd and say. And I'm sure he's listening now. Oh, we better say hello to him <laughs> then. Hello, Connor. I'm sure he is listening yeah. as well to mum and dad with us on late lunch this afternoon. So, Dunleary, you go through the, the, the three months there. How did you feel coming out from Dunleary? Um, I suppose it was hard. It was a big change. So it was uh, coming home to an environment that was completely different as such because we live in a two-storey house. We had to move the beds downstairs and stuff like that for the time being and stuff like that. And, um, like, I I wasn't... We didn't get back driving for before another month or something like that, so I didn't. Yeah. But um, uh, it was tough. But like I said, we had great family and, uh, and friends around us and uh, I used to kind of hang around a rally club there, the LMC, so I did. And... Um, they had a kind of a charity night for me and stuff like that, and uh, mm. but they helped me a lot now, so they did too. So we kind of got a uh, some funding there to buy a new car, and we got some adaptions then onto the house. Okay, so, we did. so, so you've done it. that subsequently, bit yeah. by bit, and you have it now the way you want it, and you can get about the place as well that's yourself. It. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Was yeah. it great to be back driving? Oh, fantastic! Yeah, mm. it was. Yeah, it was great. Great to get the independence back. We have a backseat driver when they came to Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Was he Lisa? Oh yes, I, I wouldn't. I, I, he's not allowed in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a real falling out here. We've got to be careful uh, with that one. But look, the reason you're with us today in particular is that uh, obviously you, you can't work full time at the the carpentry again. No, no, not necessarily. No, uh, but you no. are doing a bit, aren't you? I do a little bit. Uh, I have a Pre-stopping for Manor, they do a little bit of uh, made penal crosses for... Yes. Um, I don't know many have made three of them or something like that from. Mm. But, um, yeah, it was nice to be able to kind of get back into it. And yeah. It gives you a bit of headspace too, mm. so you can go out to the garage there. And I'm not any under pressure or like that. He'd have it too, like, so yes. it wasn't too bad. But, um, yeah, it was nice to get back to it, so it was. Mm. And your dad has a farm. He does. Small yeah. farm, yes. Small farm, yeah. And you're a hobby farmer. Is that what you describe yourself as? Uh, that's fair. Well, <laughs> what is a hobby farmer? <laughs> Please tell me. Well, my father's actually a carpenter by trade, so he is. So he, doesn't, right. he doesn't depend on the farming for his okay, income. Yes, so yeah, 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 yeah. So um, okay. he just has a few kind of mm. uh, beef animals there, so he does to... Like his father was a farmer as well, so you kind of generation to generation, such it doesn't come out of the blood as such. Yeah, but um, yeah, they do a little bit now. They wouldn't be busy all the time throughout the year, so they wouldn't. So Mm. um, uh, when they to be busy at silage and stuff like that, I wanted to try and get back into that. So I did. So I see what you're saying. There's another stream of income on the farmers. A nice little side, really, on that. Oh, yeah, 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 I understand what you're saying. But you wanted to get back into the tractor because you'd driven it yourself through the years. And that was a difficulty, was it, of getting into the tractor and driving it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Like, uh, the way I drive now at the minute is it mostly uh, it's an automatic car, so, mm-hmm. it is. so uh, I don't have to worry about clutching or yes. changing gears or anything like that. But uh, it's fair with a hand control that it's not what you drive it. So... Uh, the tractors nowadays, well, the older tractors that we would have had are all manual, so yeah. So in 2015, uh, I made a hand-controlled setup 
for the manual tractor. Yourself? For myself, yeah. And the least to do is get up in a chicken coop and into the tractor. That's the least to do. So we've evolved from there. Cock so a doodle do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Needs must be. Uh, huh? oh, yeah, so. But it, you did it. You did it. Oh, yeah. But hold on a minute, folks. He's got really sophisticated now. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them what you've done. So we have changed the tractor now, and uh, it's an automatic tractor. So I don't have to do any of this mild modifications. I can drive on the road legally now. Brilliant. And. Um, we have uh, made a heist now to try and get up into it because well, the new tractor is quite high compared to the other ones as well. So it is. So um, I seen some ideas on YouTube. So I did, and between them all, we kind of made up this one. Uh, Who made it for you? I got a. I kind of drew a plan. So I did, and I got a AMPM engineer on there and draw this. So I did. They've made this. They have made it for me. Now th- it took a lot of little uh, tweaks so it has uh, didn't work first time so I didn't but um, fair play to them now they stuck at it and they helped me out a lot so they have and we got up and going there just before Christmas so I did Can you get from your chair into the hoist and yeah. up on the tractor by yourself now? Yeah so I can yeah Isn't that brilliant? It is so it's brilliant Great independence Ah service. good man I, I really think that's fantastic that you've and look at you put your brain power to this you, you got a, an idea you modified it you've designed it and here you are able to do this now completely free so you're not dependent on anybody now <laughs> yes. you can head off on that tractor into the sunset young yeah. man and they'll be wondering no they won't be wondering they know how you got there stay with us in late lunch I have more to talk to uh, with both of you in a few moments time isn't he just fantastic yeah. another example of a man who's overed well a major setback you have to say in his life and he's here to tell us his great story today Lisa and Martin Murphy are with me on late lunch today and I've just been having a look at some of the photographs first off of those beautiful crosses you've made as well they're fantastic how many hours would it take you to uh, knock up one of those between 20 and 25 hours I'm sure it would they're beautiful yeah, you, you mentioned you sent them north. There's one in in a school, is there locally here as well in the northeast? Yeah, there's, uh, the school there. I have more actually have one sort of do and um, that you made. That you made, yeah. It's beautiful. I have to say, you hey Lisa, this has a man of many talents, isn't yes, he? Yes, yes, he, he really is. And I'm looking at the hoist here and the adapted controls for the tractor as well. The hoist is simple yet effective. Very. Effective, Does that describe yeah. it really as such? I'm sure you may be onto something here. I'm just thinking about this myself. If it's helped you, perhaps it can help others. It does, yeah. I actually have two inquiries already about it. I have a young chap from um, Navin, so I do. And I have another lad down in Kerry that are interested in coming and look at it. Isn't that terrific? Yeah, there's there's certainly, uh, I'd say, other people besides. That's only early days with this now, a couple. I think there's going to be more in that space. Watch this space uh, and see what happens with it. Now, you're you're very active. Lisa was telling me that this has not stopped you in your tracks at all. Tell me about your sailing uh, exploits. Yeah, last year I got a chance of uh, sailing on the Lord Nelson down the tall ships last year. So I did for the, a young woman here, actually from Drada, that got me involved with Nicola McDonnell. And um, we'd done a seven-day trip. So we did from uh, England over here to Dublin last year. And and had you ever been on the high seas before? Never before, no. <laughs> <laughs> All new to me, so it is. So over to Liverpool you go and you come across from there to here. Yeah. What was it like? How many? You were how many days? Seven days at sea. Seven to eight days. Yeah. What was so that like? It was. It was very good. It was a, a great experience. So it was. Um, we 
like uh, it wasn't sitting on the sidelines by any means. Like we had our shifts, we had we had a like it was a twenty four hour type of thing. So it was so we you'd work for four hours uh, for eight and on again. Yes. So it was you helped in kitchen duties, you helped putting up sails. Yes. And uh, the the ship was fantastic. It was all wheelchair adaptable, like there was wheelchair lifts and all that to get you up and down from the yeah on the ship itself. And Is uh, Nicola McDonald the Nicola McDonald who has the scoliosis? No, different no, girl. She is. Uh, she was left paralysed. Was she? Oh, different. Passing. Yeah, I know another. I know another girl of the same name. Different altogether. Yeah. She's. Uh, in a, in a wheelchair, wheelchair as well also, herself. Yeah, yeah. And she encouraged you to get involved in this. She did, yeah. She's a very hard woman to say no to. <laughs> most women, Lisa, are hard to say no to. Is that, would you say that? I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I think most are. <laughs> so you, you, you enjoyed the trip immensely. Would you do it again? I would, yeah. I think I would, yeah. Mm. Definitely. Um, we are blessed. Well, we weren't really blessed with the weather. So it was supposed to be a race on the way over, but unfortunately we lost winds around the, the Isle of Man there. So uh, we had to retire from the race. But uh, as a result of that, we got to go into the Isle of Man for the day and uh, the TTs were actually on over there at the at time. That time yeah. And so you're into yeah. your bikes, are you? Oh, like, well, like all kind of motorsports and such. So, they, so um, I actually got talking to a lad over there had a motorbike adapted for himself. He's in a wheelchair as well. He made it into a trike. It's unbelievable. Uh, Small world, like you know. Isn't I mean? faith a funny thing? Yeah. Like, had the winds blown, you'd never have gone in, and you mightn't have met this fella. Definitely, just definitely. shows you, yeah. yeah. So, if you're out in a tall ship and the wind drops, you're in a bit of bother, are you? You just <laughs> list along till she picks up again. Is that it? Yeah. Well, we had. Uh, well, there's a, an engine on the Bohar, right? But yeah. you're not allowed using in the race. Mm. But um, on the quiet day, as such, we got to do our climbing. We'd climb in the mass and everything, so we were. And uh, we were able to hoist ourselves up and up to the. So you weren't just nest. along for the spin. You had to contribute and oh, play yeah, a part in yeah. this. Yeah, that's yeah, the idea yeah. in it. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. You take part. In would it. you do another one? I definitely would. Yeah, definitely. And think yeah. plan. No, not yet. Not at the minute. No. Okay, but anyway, you're you're open to suggestion. What about uh, sport wise? You're a committed basketball player. Yes, I do. Yeah, I play for our local team here called North East Thunder. So I do, and uh, it's fantastic. I got involved probably about four years ago, so I did now through the IWA there. Uh, a man named Robbie Hall, I got in contact with him, so I did, and uh, he invited me down, and I absolutely loved it from day one. So I did. So uh, it's great. We get to visit the, the, a lot of parts of the country, like we play from Derry down to Kerry, so we do. Like, and uh, we season is from September to. Me roughly so does. Mm. So um, you love this. You love it, yeah. It's absolutely. a great sport. I've watched it. Definitely. Yeah, there's no great. holes barred or no quarter given. <laughs> there's plenty of uh, physical oh, contact yeah. and encounter in it, isn't there? There is indeed. Yeah. Are you dead eye, Dick? Can you can you can you find that hoop regularly? Yeah, I get an odd time. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I'd say you're I'd say you're playing that down a little, Martin, to me this afternoon on the show, Lisa. Obviously, behind every man and behind every woman, vice versa as well. There's a great man or a great woman. This fella has been amazing, hasn't he, since this huge setback in his life? Unbelievable, definitely. I've ne- he's never, I've never seen him getting angry. Um, you know, he really takes it in the stride now, he really does. Um, it was the rest of us that fell apart, really, because he, he was just... He was just brilliant now, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, but listen, proud. there's no need to fall apart <laughs> when you see the example he yes, gives no, to he's everybody great. as he's, well. He's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. 
And your son, what about himself? Is he as sporty as his dad, do you think, or will he be? He is mad to get playing the wheelchair basketball and there is a kiddie team as well, so um, hopefully in the next couple of years... He'll get going at he'll that. Get going he'll get going at, going at, it, at yeah. that as well. He yeah. loves to go and see him play and cheering mm. him on, and mm. he loves it. So it's great. Mm. Isn't it interesting what uh, your wife says there about the, the, them struggling in a way they felt more than yourself? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know about that. But we're yeah. all a team, Miss Oaks, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, of course, it is, and and the people around you and the support network you've had, as you said before, has has made such a difference That's to you as well. Yeah. So, anything else on your busy agenda for the year ahead? Are you going to make more of those lovely crosses? Uh, I don't know. I might make one or two now. I, I meant to make one for the local church there, and I hope to do that now. I'll do year, that. So They'd be delighted. Yeah. I'm sure they would. And, um, Try and get using this track and now make us start making papers. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you will. Anyway, it's mild enough at the minute. I was talking about the farmers uh, this week uh, to Eddie Downey as well, and all the farming year and uh, speculating ahead. Sure, there's always something happening on the land. Wish you well. Congratulations on your new invention to get you into the tractor and leading such an active life. And you're inspirational. I really say that to many people who've who receive setbacks in their life. And look, at you've got up and got on with it. For the moment, I'll say thank you to both of you for joining me on the show today. Lisa and Martin Murphy, thanks a million. Thank thanks you very much. much. Thank you. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback and three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. To some of your comments in Late Lunch this afternoon, what a wonderful young woman and so gracious. But should doctors not recognise the signs of this dreadful disease before the rash appears, says Mary? Yes, of course, but it's up to everybody to be aware of the signs and symptoms of meningitis, Mary, and really do pay close attention to your children, teenagers and all family members who, you know, may not be feeling well. Watch out and keep a good close eye on them. On them. And err on the side of caution always. If you're worried... Don't uh, delay. Seek help. Seek medical help uh, immediately. Uh, Mary there talking about the wonderful Doreen uh, Mulvihill who joined me on late lunch uh, at the start of the show today. She's a meningitis uh, so uh, survivor. Also, another one here uh, from Paddy saying, Oh, Jerry, that is such a wonderful young woman, the way she told her story. She did indeed, Paddy. Great interview, says another listener, with uh, about meningitis, Jerry. Fair play to you. You have me in tears here. I too am a survivor of meningitis and it brings me back to the time I had it and what I went through. Uh, it, it, it was not uh, nice to experience uh, and to have limbs removed uh, is really, really shocking. Every time I go back to Beaumont Hospital, I still go back to the ward I was in in 1997 when I was only 18 years of age, says a listener this afternoon. And another one for Anne Chambers, the brilliant Anne Chambers with us talking about T.K. Whittaker's biography that's published, republished now in paperback form. Um, we've had Ruth on to say, I've just finished Anne Chambers' book, Grania Whale. Yes, we spoke about that last year on the show with Anne. Delighted to hear her on LMFM this afternoon and looking forward to reading our book on T.K. Whittaker. Thank you indeed for all your comments to 086-1800-658 by text and WhatsApp. Oh, Louise, we got a lovely car, didn't we, this morning? It's amazing, isn't it? The thought and effort that went into that. It's it's terrific. Do you want to describe it for them? What's on the front of it? It's just like a little mini <laughs> newspaper, isn't it? it Tabloid is. headline. It is. Yeah, it is. It's Red the, top. 
It's a red top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a little the little front of a red top newspaper and it says on it, 10 today. And the, Where did they get that picture of me? I can't remember. <laughs> I think that might have been at one of the election counts. You've done the election counts over the years, haven't you, as well? I met you at election county. Yeah, did we? Is that where First we met? Yeah. Oh, well, love stories begin when they're counting the votes. No doubt about it. Yeah, I think it was from, well, maybe it was from something else as well, but fair juice to them. They picked the picture. I better read the little verse that's on it. It says, Dear Jerry and late lunch team, congratulations on this fantastic landmark. We're not surprised. You guys are great community and industry ambassadors. The Late Lunch team and LMFM have always been there to lend your support and ear to us throughout the years. We're excited to see what the next 10 years have in store. Oh my God. Imagine even thinking about that at that stage. Love the sentiment though. John, Cathy and all the team at Malone's Toyota. Thank you so much, John and crew. We really do appreciate it. This card gets pride of place. That's absolutely for sure. And, and it's we, up on Facebook for anyone who wants to have it. Our Louise has looked after that already. It's been a week of so many plaudits and congratulations and nice wishes and in case I forget I want to say it again. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us and this truly is a team effort on Late Lunch. You hear a lot from me alright but without Miss Louise Walsh, Deirdre Hurley or Sinead Brazel uh, and I think Akira Courtney and Brian Curran and others through the years, they're the people who really are the ones who knit this show together every day, bring the guests to you. I'm sort of the conduit for it, but without those people, there would be no late lunch. And I want to say a big thank you to all of you and reiterate that again today on the show. Anyway, it's a regular and late lunch at this stage, well established. What am I talking about? Lose weight and feel great each year. It's year five or six with the people in integral fitness and leisure. They're fantastic there and once again this year we're taking four people starting next Monday for six weeks on a journey you've met Anne Mead Donald Waters and Siobhan O'Neill White who's number four number four of four is waiting in reception at the moment and you're going to meet him in a moment all is to be revealed we have our famous four now our next participant in Lose Weight and Feel Great 2019 in association with Integral Fitness and Leisure is with me on late lunch now. He's a well-known sportsman in the Wee County. If I tell you he played in goals for 18 years from he started at 16 years of age and he only stopped playing football a couple of years ago. Who am I talking about? Mid-Louth area, not Cullen, not RD, sort of wedged in the middle. Yes, you know it. Hunterstown, yes, Hunterstown Rovers. He's their most famous goalkeeper and he's joining us on this programme for the next six weeks. I'm delighted to welcome to Late Lunch, Alan Fedigan. Alan, good to see you. Thanks very much, Jerry. Thank you for joining us uh, today on the show. Well, here you are. You're part of the four and uh, we're ready to rock and roll from Monday. Are you all set? All set, all ready to go. Now, tell me about you. you I, I said there in the introduction, you started... In goals with the senior Hunterstown team at 16. Yes, 1999, yes. And wasn't that a memorable year for you as well? Yes, well, you started off thinking you were going to win everything. Like <laughs> First year of championship. It was a long while before we won another championship. What did you win that year, 99? The Intermediate Championship. It was a big win for a club like Hunterstown, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely was. And I suppose you're right. When you get that start as a youngster, so you thought... It's going to be like this every year. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a big challenge to step between the posts at 16 years of age in your first team at a club, isn't it? It was, yeah. Actually, my father was a selector that year and he had previously done goals for Hunterson for 20 years as well. So, so you followed in followed, his yes. footsteps with the gloves. Yes. Was it always goals for you? Did you From, from you started always, playing football, yeah. you wanted to be a keeper, did you? Well, I'm not saying I wanted to be, but that's where I was put and <laughs> stayed there. <laughs> 
Is it the toughest position on the pitch? Yes, not well. It has good points and bad points, but no, it's 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 okay. Yeah, but you're you're either the greatest hero in the world, or I'm sure you hear the shouts from the sideline if it goes wrong. Of course, yeah, of course. Last yeah. man, last man is yeah. right. And there's only one position when you think you know. There's a number of backs and centre field and up through the pitch as well. You are the the, the linchpin and the one person. And in a Gaelic club, generally the keeper it's his jersey for. A good while, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, eighteen years was long enough. Yeah, from sixteen for eighteen years you played for them. So you won intermediate in ninety nine, and you had to wait. Uh, Twenty thirteen was it? Was the, the junior junior championship? Yes, in thirteen. That was a memorable day for the club, wasn't oh, it? Brilliant. Yes, yeah, yeah. It definitely was. The wins are, are ones that you really remember for sure. So, as a goalkeeper and part of the GAA family, you're training. You're active. Yes. Probably not as much as I should have been. Like you know, you okay. could always get away with a little less training when you're in goals. When they were the goalkeeper. Yeah. When did you start playing? Two years ago, in sixteen, yeah, two thousand sixteen. And when you stopped playing, did you put on weight? Unbelievable amount. Yes. Did yeah, you? Yeah. About three stone, I'd say. Oh my God! So yeah. you really have. Yeah. I mightn't have done a lot of training in them times, but at least you are. Yes. Discipline, you know, you're so you've missed that, yes. Now, of course, you have a very responsible job because I want to tell them you run a very famous establishment in color in Cullen. You've been how long in Waters since 2006? Good God, you're 13 years there 13 at this years, stage, yeah. yeah. It was just I worked in the Traveller's Rest for 10 years, and then Paddy Waters approached myself and Lisa one day and asked us, Would we be willing to take the lease for five years? So we said we would. And 13 years later, I was still there. In a very good spot, I have to say. It's a very popular venue, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yeah. For food and entertainment and that as well. And socialising. You mentioned Lisa, who's your partner. She's the woman that prepares the food, is she? Yes. Looks like she's good at it. Yeah, well, she's very good at it, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, it's not when she's there, it's when she's not there. <laughs> Why is that? Why do you say that? Because you'll be picking and just eating what you like. Oh, ah, right, right. All right, but she's she'll try and keep you on the straight and oh, narrow with the yeah, good definitely. stuff on that yes, as well. Yes. You have children, two daughters. Two daughters, yes. Ella, Ella, who is 14, and Kyra, actually, who is 10 on Sunday. Great. Are they into the football? Yes, yes. Ella is actually with the load on the 14s at the minute. Ladies, yeah. Terrific. Yeah. And her club, is she Matt or Grangers? No, Hunterstown. Oh, God. Sorry, yes. I'm after saying something wrong there. The both Hunterstown, yes, aren't they, girls? Yes, yeah. You had a fantastic year just gone by with Mattock, with the Mattock ladies, yourself and David Brennan. No, myself and Peter Dooley. Peter Dooley, yeah, was P- it? Yeah, Peter was the manager and I was Sorry. Yes. Why do I say David Brennan? Is he involved with you? This year coming, we are, Peter has taken the manager job for Hunterstown and myself and David is going with him. Oh, I see. The whole team is moving there, sort of from your successes of last year with the girls in Cullen. Yes. And you're going back home to Hunterstown. Back home. Are you getting a bit of jip about that? A little bit, yeah. Cullen are looking forward to meeting us maybe in the championship, so we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, because you're both intermediate, so it'll be interesting, is right. Um, Being a Hunterstown man, you you know, working in Cullen, is there always a little bit of banter there and an edge on the sporting front? Uh, There would be banter, but we actually played together as underage, we were combined, so just, you know, it's all friends there, there's no. It's all yeah. a bit of crack, that's all it is. I did say at the beginning, you're a little unfortunate in a way because you have the Marys on one side you and Mattock on the other, you know, and the two big clubs in yeah. loud football. Yeah. And yeah. But we still have we have a good enough pick, you know. Yeah. Plenty of good footballers down in Hunterson, so Yeah. And and a nice tight little club you yes. have there, haven't you? Yeah. So 
you're joining us. You're, you're throwing your lot in with Anne Mead, who I do know you know, uh, with Donald Waters from Blackstone Motors and Siobhan O'Neill White from Mams.ie and you, Alan Fedigan, are the fourth participant this year in this programme. Uh, would you have done gym or anything like that much in the past? Well, I would have, yeah, but my problem is I need to be in a group or a, a team or, you know, going, I, I was in the gym there for the last while, but you're going in every morning, but it's not the same. You need, I need to be pushed. I'm the kind of person who needs to be pushed. You are about to be pushed big time for the next six weeks. Are you ready for this? Yes, looking forward to it. You're going to be willing to be pushed along and do whatever is needed on the programme, with the eating as well, I have to say. Yes, yes, there's an eating, there's a menu being done up in the pub for me, so I'll have to stick to it. <laughs> is there already? Yes. They're, they're on the road to that. They're ahead of the posse here before you even uh, take part in this. Um, so I, I said it to the others as well. And I don't want you to mention the figure here today, if you have it. Have you thought about this? Have you something in your mind that you'd say, you know what, in six weeks, there's something I'd like to aim for? Do you know, Do you know? Uh, without, and I don't want you to re- say this either, because we're going to do it here on Tuesday and reveal to everybody. Have you an idea where you sit weight-wise? Oh, I have, yes, yes. Okay. And do you have a figure in your mind or something you'd like to do? Are you concentrating solely on trying to get weight down or anything else besides? No, weight down, obviously, yeah. Like... I don't know how other people feel, but when I have weight on me, I, I'd be annoyed about it. Like, you know I mean? It gets me down by time, so this is a challenge and I'm going to go for it. OK, so you're going to be looking at these numbers on the scales and doing your level best to drop these numbers week on week as we go along. Most definitely, yeah. We've been mighty successful, you know, with this every year. There's been fantastic stories and everybody has shed substantial amounts. So be encouraged by that, Alan. I'm yes. telling you that already, that that's the way it's going to work. Uh, over the next six weeks as well. Okay, and Lisa, what about Lisa and the girls? Are they all set for this? Are they right yeah, behind you? Yeah, well, Lisa's kind of set in the house that we'll be all on this kind of diet, but so the little ones are giving out why do they have to suffer, but... We'll <laughs> oh, it. listen, listen, don't, don't, please, leave the girls be. Let the girls do their own thing. It's all right if you and Lisa want to want to join forces with this, but it's interesting you say that because some of the others as well were saying to me that they're doing it as a family thing as well themselves, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Terrific, terrific. Anyway, I wish you well on the programme. Uh, we are weighing in on Monday. We're weighing in on Monday uh, and we we will bring our listeners the news Tuesday top of the show here from the weigh-in on Monday evening and we'll see where everybody's starting and we'll take it on from there for the six weeks. Alan Fedigan, it's great to have you on board. Thank you, Joe. I wish you well and I'll see you in the gym Monday. Is that OK? No Enjoy your weekend. <laughs> take care of yourself. Alan Fedigan there. So there we have it. And me, Donald Waters, Siobhan O'Neill-White and Alan Fedigan are our four on Lose Weight and Feel Great 2019 in association with Integral Fitness and Leisure. And I'm so looking forward myself uh, to the next six weeks or so. Anyway, that's almost a lot on Late Lunch for this very special week, the week of our 10th birthday. And thank you again to everybody who's been in touch. I want to say my thank yous again to our guests this week, to our regulars who come to us on the show, but especially to you, our listeners who join us out there every day to tune in and uh, send us your feedback and stop us on the street or meet us out there and tell us how you feel about what we do. Thank you very much for your company every day. Have a lovely weekend. I want to say big thanks again to my producers this week, Sinead Brazel and Louise Walsh, and we'll be back with a brand new week of Late Lunch from Monday at half one. Eddie's up next. We'll leave you in the company of Mr Bill Withers. Have a good weekend. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away 
Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away And I know, 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 hey, I ought to leave the young thing alone, but ain't no sunshine when she's gone, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.